who works out everything in agreement with the decision of His will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to His glory. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, which has influenced virtually all Protestant confessions of faith more so than than any other, certainly our Baptist confessions of faith have been influenced by it. In it, it said very famously now today, the chief end of man is to glorify God. In the Philadelphia Baptist Confession of Faith, which was the first Baptist Confession of Faith written in the United States, it says, In the beginning it pleased God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the manifestation or making visible of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein. In our church's mission statement that we've adopted in the last couple of years, we begin it in this way. Our mission is to glorify God. So this morning, I want us to think about the subject of glorifying God because it's the subject of the passage that's before us today, Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. Before we read it, let me spend just a moment talking about something that I talked about just a little while last Sunday morning. It was because it was introduced in our passage last week and continues to be a subject in the passage before us today, uh, that subject being the glory of God. God is glorious. God is full of glory. Glory belongs to God and it belongs to no other, for He and He alone is truly glorious. When the Bible speaks, or when I speak of the glory of God, what, what I'm talking about, or even better, what the Bible is talking about is the, the power of God, the prominence of God, the, the perfection of God, and all of the perfections of God. It's, it's a word that's communicating to us the greatness of God, how big God is, the holiness of God. And God's purpose in doing everything that He's done, God's purpose in everything is to be glorified. When we hear that, that sounds conceited, doesn't it? To some ears, certainly it would sound that way. God's purpose in everything is to bring glory unto Himself. Well, certainly it would be conceited and arrogant if that were our purpose in everything we do, right? To bring glory into ourself. We try to teach our children not to be that way. And we don't want to be that way. Why then is it okay for God in everything that He has done and everything that He's doing to seek to bring glory unto Himself? Why is that okay for God? Well, the first answer would be because He's God. And then a a follow-up answer would be, this is right for God to do this because He alone is glorious and perfect. He deserves it. 
additional answer would be that it is for our good that God seeks to be glorified. We find our purpose and our meaning in life as we begin to understand that it's all about the glory of God and our our real contentment and joy and happiness and purpose can only be found in looking toward and hoping for and living for the glory of God. He does it for our good. That's why he seeks to be glorified because we experience the most and the best when we see his glory and understand that it's all about that. Our purpose then becomes to glorify God. And by glorify God, what I mean is to reveal his glory. We want to give God glory. We want to recognize his power and all of these other things that we've talked about. And in our lives, the way that we live them and in the the words that we speak and the words that we share, we want to point people to the glory of God. We want to be means through which God reveals his glory to the world around us. And when I say we, I mean both we as individuals and we as a group, a a local church, and we as a group a part of the, the bigger church, the whole body of Christ. So the question becomes, how do we do this? If our purpose is to glorify God, to to point others to his glory, to give him glory, to recognize his glory. How do we do this? And a related question in the, the passage that we've been studying in this context is, what does glorifying God have to do with unity? Which has been the subject of Romans 14 and thus far in, in Romans chapter 15. Well, we're going to find the answer or answers to this question or these questions in this passage on glorifying God. Let's read it together. If you follow along with me as I begin to read in verse 7 of Romans 15. Therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised, and circumcised there means the Jews, on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing psalms to your name. Again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all the peoples should praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just before I 
read that passage, we looked at it together, I, I said the question today is, how do we glorify God? And, and a related question in our context is, what does glorifying God have to do with unity, the subject of this, this overall passage? And I said that we would find the answer in this passage. So right off the bat, let's answer that question or those questions. We glorify God by accepting each other. We glorify God, we give Him glory, we reveal His glory, we point others to His glory, we recognize His glory by accepting each other. And I take that, of course, from verse 7, the first verse in this passage that we've just read. It says, therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. Listen again. Therefore, accept one another to the glory of God. This verse, of course, follows the passage that we studied last week, and I want you to look back for just a moment to verses 5 and 6 because verse 7 piggybacks on them. It follows from them. Verse 5 says, and this is a prayer of Paul. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony or unity with one another according to the command of Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. Paul had been talking about the subject of unity in chapter 14 in the early part of chapter 15 and in those two verses, he begins to pray for what he's been teaching them about, that it would be so among them, that they would have unity or harmony among the church at Rome. And it's a, a prayer for the church and a prayer for any church today as well. Verse 6, though, tells us why this subject of unity and this prayer for unity is so important. It's so that we may glorify God. God is glorified when His people are united, when they live in harmony with each other in spite of their differences, in spite of their differences of opinions on issues of gray that was a subject of chapter 14, in spite of their differences in personalities, in spite of their differences in backgrounds, in spite of their differences in likes and dislikes, in spite of their differences in economic status, in spite of their differences in living conditions, in spite of their differences ethnically and, and nationally, in spite of any differences that His people may have, God is glorified when His people live in unity, in harmony. And the only way that harmony or unity takes place is when in spite of our differences, we accept each other. A word that we've already seen in our study through Romans thus far. Again, the, the, the big point that he's making is among the many ways that we could glorify God, a primary way that we glorify God, point others to His glory, reveal His glory, is by accepting each other. 
That word accept means to accept as brothers and sisters in the faith. You remember back in chapter 14 when we were studying about issues of gray and unity and harmony there? And, and I told you then, maybe even more than once, that just because someone differs with us on an issue of gray, an issue that the Bible doesn't specifically condone or condemn, that doesn't mean they're not a Christian. And sometimes we've made it that way, right? Somebody differs with me on these, what the Bible would consider to be relatively minor issues. We want to chalk it up to the fact that, well, I've got the Lord and they don't. But that's not always the case. This word accept means to accept them as brothers and sisters in the faith. In spite of their differences, to do it warmly, to do it gladly. And the word accept is a word that speaks of unity. We've already seen this word accept. I, I mentioned that. Let me show you where we've seen it most recently. In chapter 14, verse 1, where this whole subject of issues of gray, how to deal with them in the church, and unity came up. The very first word in the passage was accept. Accept anyone who is weak in the faith. And there I told you that it means accept them as a brother or a sister. Don't make how they feel on an issue of gray a litmus test for whether or not they're a Christian. Accept them as a believer. Verse 15, chapter 1, or verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, I'll get it right. It says, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Why do we have an obligation to those who are weak? Because they're our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We are to accept each other. Like Jesus accepted us. Isn't that what it said in, in verse 7? Go back to it again. Therefore accept one another just as the Messiah also accepted you. We're to accept each other because Jesus has accepted us. We're to accept each other like Jesus has accepted us. As he did in the previous passage, Paul again points to Jesus as being an example of of the way that we're to live, and especially the way that we're to treat each other. We're to treat others, in particular others within the church, like Jesus has treated us. I do want you to notice something that I think is rather profound and significant about that phrase. It doesn't say anything about us accepting Jesus. It says something about Jesus accepting us, doesn't it? I consider myself just a little bit of a student of, of history and even more of church history. And I find it interesting that the phrase to accept Jesus didn't come into being until about the last hundred years. And I'm not opposed to it. I mean, I know what people mean when they talk about it. But the reason that it never was used before is the idea of accepting Jesus almost puts you in the position of being superior to him. Like uh, he's asking for your vote 
He's running for Lord and Savior, and if you'll just cast your vote for Jesus and accept him as your candidate, then he could be elected. Now, whether we use the word or the phrase or not, that's not my, my utmost concern. My utmost concern is this. Jesus isn't running for anything. He's already it. And far more important than your accepting Jesus is Jesus accepting you. And Jesus accepting me. We're the ones who are in the position of inferiority. And Jesus has established the way through which he, as God, will accept anyone who will come to him. And that is through faith on him for salvation. And then what he is and who he is and what he's done begins to count for you. And it makes you acceptable. It's all about him. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 3. Go back to it just for a moment. We'll see a, a similar idea here to uh, Jesus accepting us. We're to accept each other like he has accepted us. It says, one who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not criticize one who does. Why? Because God has already accepted him. As a child of his, as belonging to him. Almost the same thing that we've just seen in chapter 15, verse 7. That we're to accept each other, we're not to criticize each other, we're not to look down on each other when it comes to our differences, because God, because Christ has accepted us. So the question becomes, how has Jesus accepted us? Have you ever thought about that? How, how were you when Jesus accepted you? How has God accepted us? How has God in Christ accepted us? Would you agree with me that we could answer that question generally in this way? He's accepted us just as we are. Just as we were, he accepted us. He has accepted us as sinners. Not sinners who have straightened things out, but sinners. He has accepted us as weak. And with all of our weaknesses, he has accepted us. He has accepted us as people who are burdened. And beyond that, going back to something we've recently seen in this passage, he's accepted us even though sometimes we're the burden. We don't just have burdens, we're the burden. He has accepted us. He has accepted us without criticism. He has accepted us without looking down on us for our views on issues of grace. I mean, think about that. In all of your presentations that you've heard of the true gospel, in all of your reading about God's accepting of us in the Bible, have you ever read anything that says, I will accept you as long as you'll sign on the line to eat this and not this, or do this and don't do this on this day, or drink this and not drink this. No, those things may be talked about in the Bible, but they're never prerequisites for salvation. 
God has accepted us with our flaws. God has accepted us just as imperfect as we are. And that word's not really a strong word. We're, we're much worse than imperfect, aren't we? That would, in, that would almost imply close to perfect. We're not. He has accepted us with all of our differences. This is what's at stake here. If you think it's hard to accept somebody else in the family of faith that's different, think of how different you are than God. And he's accepted us. He has accepted us warped and all. He doesn't say, hey, you take care of those warts and pretty yourself up and then come back and we'll talk. No, he accepts us warts and all. And then he covers the warts. And over time, he begins to take the warts away. And ultimately, one day when it's over, all of them will be gone. So that's the answer to how has Jesus accepted us. That's how we're to accept each other. We'd accept each other with all of our differences, with all of our warts, with all of our flaws, with all of our sins, with all of our burdens, even if we are the burdens, without criticism, without looking down on each other. That's how we're to accept each other. Then you start to ask yourself the question, well, why has Jesus accepted us? Because it's going to help us accept each other. Why has Jesus accepted us? We'll go back to verse 7 again. Therefore, Accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. Why did Jesus accept us just like we were? Because it glorified God to do so. What does it mean it glorified God to do so? It means through his acceptance of sinners like us, the glory of God was revealed in a way that otherwise it wouldn't be revealed. It was made more easy to see. I hope that we all understand that God's glory is most clearly revealed through how he saves sinners in Christ. God is glorified for that, should be glorified for that, and eternally by all who have been saved, he will be glorified for that. Even the angels who have no personal experience of salvation glorify God for his saving of sinners just like us. They sing songs to God continuously for his glory in saving. That's why in our mission statement, it doesn't simply stop with our mission is to glorify God. It goes on to say our mission is to glorify God by making disciples. And making disciples would include reaching those who aren't yet followers of Christ, but it would also include teaching those who are already followers of Christ. And I'll take the idea of Jesus glorifying God by accepting sinners a step further. Not only does he glorify God by saving sinners, but he also glorifies God by sanctifying saved sinners. Is there anyone here this morning who isn't what he or she should be, but praise God you aren't what you used to be? That's sanctification. 
And did you know right now God is being glorified because of his work in making you more like Jesus? He's being glorified in heaven for it. Maybe you're glorifying for it. Maybe your wife is looking at you and she is saying, praise God for what he's done in my husband's life. Maybe a parent's looking at a child or a grown child and praising God right now for the work that he's done in that child's life. God is glorified through Jesus' acceptance of us. Now I want you to look at how Jesus did this. How did he accept us? Verse 8. For I say that the Messiah, Messiah is a word, synonym for Christ. Messiah is the Old Testament version, Christ the New Testament. For I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised of the Jews, Israel, on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. The fathers are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenant that God began with them in the book of Genesis. And also so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Now that says a lot, but let me uh, compress it just a little bit. What it's saying is that Jesus did everything that he did. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he did all that he did so that God would be glorified. So that the glory that belongs to God would be seen or better seen among the people that he ministered to. He did what he did so that God would first of all be glorified among the Jews. There in verse 8, referred to as the circumcised. Jesus came and he, he served the Jews. He came for them. He came first for them. He was brought to this world through this physical people, a, a physical descendant of Abraham, David himself. And he came to confirm all of the promises that God had made to them that we find in the Old Testament. And so in his coming, his purpose for coming to the Jews was so that the Jews would glorify God or, or praise God and worship God for his being truthful, for his being faithful to everything that he said he would do, so that they would praise God who had so long promised a Savior for sending a Savior, the Messiah. Jesus also did what he did so that God would be glorified among the Gentiles. And that's where we come in, or most of us come in. Verse 9 said that he came so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Now the Jews, ideally, theoretically, it didn't happen with all of them, but ideally Jesus came so that they would see him as the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made and they would praise God for doing what he said he was going to do. The Gentiles was another story. Because God's word, for the most part, hadn't been revealed to the Gentiles. There were exceptions, but for the most part, it had been given to the Jews, through the Jews. Jesus came for the Jews, or for the Gentiles, so that we would glorify him for his mercy. 
Well, what does that mean? For so long, the Gentiles, Gentiles means non-Jews, were on the outside looking in of a relationship with God, right? I mean, for the entire period of the Old Testament, God had singled out the nation of Israel, and those that belonged to him were vast majority Jewish. There were Gentiles that were among the people of God throughout the time of the Old Testament, but they were the minority. They were the exception. When Christ came, the gospel began to be proclaimed not simply to Israel, but to all peoples. And by the time of the book of Acts, you've got the gospel going out to pretty much the whole known Gentile world. The book of Romans is an example of that. Paul is writing a letter here to a church in the center of the Gentile world that was primarily Gentile. By his saving of Gentiles, the mercy of God would be glorified or praised because for so long they had had no access, but now they did. And the Gentiles who were saved are like, though we have no stake in this inheritance, God has given this to us just free and clear and from mercy and grace and we praise him for his mercy in not giving us what our, uh, we deserve and giving us what we don't deserve. The bigger point here is that Jesus accepted both Jews and Gentiles and his acceptance of the Gentiles is especially significant. You'd think that he would accept the Jews. They were the chosen people of God. But his acceptance of the Gentiles was a big deal. And it's from that that we learn a lot about glorifying God through accepting others. Jesus brought glory to God from Gentiles like us by accepting us. And it is the example from which we are to learn how to accept others for the glory of God. And we'll talk more about it next Sunday morning. Are there any saved Gentiles who glorify God for Jesus accepting us? Didn't have to be that way, did it? We hear sometimes about people who are from the wrong side of the tracks, from the wrong family. Historically and biblically speaking, we're those people, every single one of us Gentiles. I don't care how highfalutin you think you are. In the story of God, no Gentile is from the privileged family. We're the dogs. We're the ones who lived out in the suburbs is not even a nice enough title for it. A great wall existed between us and God. Ephesians talks about us having no hope. And it wasn't like we were wanting hope and asking for it, but he wasn't giving it. We weren't even looking for it. We had all turned the other way, at least our ancestors had. And, and individually, we've done this too. But God in his mercy broke down the wall. And he made people who had before that been known as not his people, his people. 
and the glory of his grace and his might to save and his mercy and his unconditional love is revealed in that way among us. As we go out this week, let's praise God for his greatness in saving us. Let's give him the glory that he deserves inwardly, personally, and let's do it with the way that we live so that others can see and be intrigued by this God of glory who has saved us, and they too will give him glory.